Dr. Amalia Gonyas-Malka. Welcome to Womanity, Woman in Unity, the show that celebrates prominent and ordinary African women's milestone achievements in their struggles for liberation, self-emancipation, human rights, democracy, racism, socioeconomic class division, and gender-based violence. Joining us in our Pretoria studio today is the Australian High Commissioner to South Africa, Botswana, Lesotho, Mozambique, Namibia, Angola, and Iswatini, Gita Kamath. Welcome. Thank you, Amelia. I'm delighted to be here, and that's a bit of a mouthful. <laughs> You've got a massive portfolio. Yes, and, and as I said to you before um, the interview, I think the, um, the assignment in South Africa is more than a full-time job in itself. <laughs> well, welcome to the country. Welcome to the continent, in fact. And to start with the show, you've served Australia for more than 20 years and you've held a variety of different roles in the the foreign affairs space. Can you share with us a few of the the landmarks in your career? Yeah, sure. I mean, obviously, there there are obvious professional landmarks, like when I got appointed into our senior executive service and, you know, first ambassadorial appointment when I was our permanent delegate to UNESCO in Paris and, of course, arriving in South Africa. But... um, there were also some personal um, landmarks for me was, was my first posting because you join a foreign ministry to go on posting. Um, and, and where was that? That was I was actually posted to Indonesia, to Jakarta, which was um, something I'd been wanting to do for years because I'd studied Indonesian at school. And uh, I had to um, do long-term language training and I was actually in Indonesia, in central Java on language training when the Australian government changed and uh, discovered a big budget deficit and uh, instituted major job cuts across the public service. Uh, And so in one year, our foreign ministry shrunk by 20%. And unfortunately, they took a bit of an approach of last in, first out. And so I got a call when I was in East Java saying, hi, the ambassador wants to see you. And I had to go fly back into Jakarta and got told that they were cutting my posting. Uh, And... um, I hadn't arrived, of course, I was still on language training, and they said, oh, but we've, we've paid for all your language training, so finish it all and go back to Canberra. So that was a landmark for me because I had an expectation about what I was going to do for the next three years, and it didn't eventuate like that. But I learned a lot from that about um, because after that, I subsequently spent a year in Canberra, and I went to Singapore, and I had a wonderful posting in Singapore. Um, and it was always... After that, I've always learned, expect the unexpected, be resilient and be open to new opportunities and new experiences. And it also sounds a case of of being able to make the most of whatever situation, circumstance you're in. So you started, for instance, with the language training, you were able to complete that. So you're fluent and you've got a new set of skills and being able to to adjust into a different position. Absolutely. And uh, another sort of landmark, which was when I was on posting in Singapore, was the birth of my first child. Um, Because, you know, as a junior diplomat, you sort of think at the time, and this was in the late 90s, how on earth can I ever, you know, have a child on posting? Because there was no... Absolutely no option at that time to go part-time or do any of that. But having seen someone else do it, it really opened my eyes at at what was possible. And uh, in those days, we only got 12 weeks of maternity leave, which I realise is not even three months. (laughs) And uh, um, so I was determined to work as as close as possible to the birth because I would only have a certain amount of it. So I worked on the Friday and I gave birth on the Monday. Um, <laughs> that was a landmark wow. for me, being able to have a child while um, working on posting. 
thinking about having a child, it's it's part of of a woman's fabric. It's part of our our life cycle. But in order to be able to fulfill our life cycle, we've got to have certain enablers mm. in our life to make that happen mm. and the right sets of support structures. So whether it's it's from a maternity leave point of view, whether it is about daycare or, or other avenues to help us. It, you know, long gone are the days where we have to do everything ourselves. Mm. And quite frankly, we shouldn't. Yeah, and I'm pleased to say that in our foreign ministry now, um, that was 20 years ago, but 20 years later, we have much better support mechanisms and policies in place for women generally, but also specifically for women who uh, want to have children on posting. Coming up to where you are today, mm. you've you've been in South Africa, you mentioned on and off from July 2019. What would you say are some of the key challenges for you in this role? Well, when I arrived here, I was really struck by the breadth and depth of the relationship between Australia and South Africa. Um, there are enduring people-to-people links. You know, we have... Um, everyone I meet seems to have some connection with Australia, um, whether it's, you know, they've visited or they've got a child who's studied there or they've got a relative there. Um, and we have direct flights, daily direct flights from Perth and Sydney, which means that really... Um, emphasizes and and facilitates the people to people links we have really strong surprisingly strong trade and investment links so and it's two ways so australia's investing as much in south africa as south africa is investing in australia um, and we have links sporting ties you know rugby and cricket and netball we have very strong science and technology links. We're both hosting the Square Kilometre Array, the, which will be the world's largest radio telescope. But I think the challenge is that, and it's both of us, both countries find ourselves in different neighbourhoods in some ways. And, and it's very natural that you will engage with your neighbours more than with more broadly. And I think that's the case for both countries. And it's entirely natural. So for South Africa, it's the the, the broader African continent, and perhaps to some extent looking north. And it's the same for Australia. We find ourselves in one of the fastest growing economic regions of the world in in Southeast Asia, North Asia, and and, in the Pacific. And so that's our our natural neighbourhood as well. So I think the challenge is to try and raise awareness about the strength of the relationship and get the, the political engagement. And often I find with different countries, they're looking at these cross-border relationships from a a diplomatic point of view when they come into a a nation. So in your case, Australia coming into South Africa and almost half of sub-Sahara. But you often have particular development programs geared Mm. towards vulnerable groupings. And I wondered if you had anything in particular that is Mm. addressing women's development Yes, well, the Australian government's aid program, which is almost $4 billion a year, um, under our first female foreign minister, actually, in 2013, we had a a new aid paradigm. And under our new aid policy, um, it was uh, determined that at least 80% of our aid investments, regardless of their objectives, had to effectively address gender issues in their implementation. So as a result of that, we invest very strongly in enhancing women's voice in decision-making, in women's economic empowerment, and in ending violence against women and girls. And at the High Commission, our flagship 
bilateral program is our scholarships program, the Australia Awards program. And I'm pleased to say that we have actively sought and achieved and managed to maintain gender parity, which is not always easy in the in the selection of, of scholars because we find that there are far less women who apply for, for the scholarship program. We also have um, an Australian Volunteers program and under that program, we have had a number of volunteers placed as gender specialists in, in South African organisations, non-government and um, think tanks, for instance. And um, we also have a direct aid program, so a small grants program. And under that program, we've had quite a focus on um, gender empowerment um, projects. And I'm pleased to say that more broadly across the in the High Commission, we have a very good gender balance. And across Africa, um, six of our Australia's nine diplomatic missions are headed by women. So over half. Mm. One of the things that I found is that there also almost seems to be this increasing feminization in governments and and also in in the diplomatic corps. And I think if my numbers stand correctly, that in in South that ambassadors and high commissioners into South Africa, that there's I think twenty percent are women. That's right. I, I recently had the honour to present credentials to President Ramaphosa. And during the credential ceremony, there were 17 new ambassadors and only four of us were women. And so I then did a little bit more investigation and I worked out that while South Africa, while Pretoria has one of the largest numbers of diplomatic missions in any bilateral city, capital city, over 135, um, only about less than 20% are headed by women. So I actually organised a, a function with all the female heads of mission and also um, South African women who are in positions of influence and leadership because I think I'm a firm believer in the sisterhood and I think that there is is um, power in the collective and, and men have always had these natural networks. Yes, they have. Um, and I think we need to also get our social networks working to to give us voice and an agency. But I... I think that, you know, and it's because it's a human tendency to gravitate towards people who are like you. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do think that there are also advantages in being in a minority because often you are, you find yourself um, as, you know, a small number or if not the only woman in a, in a room or at a dinner table or so on. But I think because I think half of the challenge of, you know, part of the stages of getting influence is having visibility. And, uh, you know, if you're in a room with people in grey suits and you've got a colourful, autom- automatically you have this, you know, advantage that you stick out. But then you have to obviously take advantage of that and go one step further and, and speak and use your voice. But it helps. Hi, this is Lyra, South African Afro soul singer and songwriter. You're listening to Womanity, Women in Unity, presented by Dr. Amelia Malka on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance, a program that celebrates prominent and ordinary African women's milestone achievements in their struggle for liberation, self-emancipation, human rights and democracy. Today, we're talking to the High Commissioner of Australia to South Africa, Botswana, Lesotho, Mozambique, Namibia, Angola, and Iswatini, Gita Kameth. We would love to receive your comments on Twitter at Womanity Talk. Staying with the theme of, of women in leadership, our program really focuses on, on gender equality as, a, as an important global focus. 
And I think that part of that is about developing female leadership. Mm. So, for instance, when you're talking about belief in the sisterhood and establishing networks, uh, it'll obviously foster relations and, and help move things ahead. Generally, how do you see female leadership, whether it's from a, a parliamentary perspective, a politics, a business, mm. or, or any other field for that matter? Yeah, this is an interesting question, and I try to avoid gender stereotyping. Um, I think there are there are different leadership styles, and I I think either gender and there's not one style that's more successful than another. And I think that either gender can learn to succeed in different styles. So I don't actually see that there's a, def- a female leadership model. Um, one thing I do find though is that that sort of key. There's a couple of things that are key to leadership, and one is having a, building self confidence and having a sense of self belief. And I think a lot of women um, struggle with that. And I think to become a leader, you actually there are two key things. You have to see yourself as a leader, and you have to be seen by others as a leader. And I think this is this is where you have these unconscious biases that can create barriers for women. And I think to see yourself as a leader involves a fundamental shift in identity. You have to kind of integrate leadership into your identity. And that doesn't necessarily come naturally if you don't have this self-belief or self-confidence or role models, actually. Um, and you also need external affirmation. Um, so to give you that confidence to, you know, step outside your comfort zone and, and experiment. And so that's where you need mentoring and role models. And um, uh, and you need to have these policies and practices around that support these things. So it comes back to visibility and almost self-visibility of, of being able to see yourself mm. in those shoes mm. and completely agree with you with the affirmation and policies around you that, that mm. support and, and enable you. There's so few countries globally who have had or have women occupying the pinnacle mm. of, of mm. leadership mm. As, as a country mm. leader, whether it's a, a president or, or prime minister. But Australia's had a first female prime minister, Julia Gillard, who held office from 2010 to 2013. And I think that women occupying positions in government and serving as heads of state mm. are, are significant for a number of reasons, many of which we've already spoken about, whether it is demonstrating empowerment, governance, uh, serving as role models, and looking at that both from a role model point of view, from women and men, to see that women are capable of, of leadership positions. And it also helps to have suitable representation for, of a gender point mm. of view in terms of policy mm. development and implementation. Uh, so my first question is, do you think more countries are, are ready for a female president or prime minister? Um, I think that... Well, I'll just first start one statistic, which is the World Economic Forum um, has done some research into this, and it said that based on current trends and policies, it will take 170 years to reach gender equality globally. And that's so that's about five more generations. So I don't think we can wait until there's some artificial sense of being ready. <laughs> it's, it's, it's incredulous. You know, we, yeah. none of us would be alive by then. Correct. Although, you know, we are living longer. Correct. But yeah, 170 years is ridiculous. Yeah. So it really is then about what is the enabling environment to try and affect change. And um, I'm actually quite a uh, supporter of targets. Um, just looking at our own foreign ministry, for example, in 2015, less than 25% of our diplomatic missions were headed by women. 
We then had our first female permanent secretary appointed only in 2015. And under her leadership, that number has gone from less than 25% to over 42% in three years. Um, So I think because we've had targets, we haven't had quotas, but we've had targets. Tell me the difference between targets versus quotas. Targets is it's, it's, it's setting an ambition. Uh, it's making sure that you very deliberately are looking at what your policies and proceed are in, you have in place to try and make it easier for or to encourage women to actually put their hand up. Because what we were finding as well is that women weren't putting their hand up. They were almost holding themselves back. Whereas a quota is actually then saying, well, you know, if you actually saying, well, we're going to go and pick people and just put them in those positions. And I think this comes back to this issue of you can appoint women, but if they're not psychologically, haven't integrated the sense of a leadership identity themselves, and you don't have um, external structures that are going to affirm that, there's no point just putting women in place because you're not actually setting them up for failure. Correct. Um, and I think there's an interesting example in, in Australia at the political level where we have two major parties and one of those parties back in 1994 decided they would set targets for women in parliament and it would not just be about women, uh, you know, uh, running for parliament but it's about pre-selecting them for winnable seats. And so they set a target back then, I think, of about 35% of women would have be selected for, for winnable seats by the next 10 years. And progressively over the years, they've increased the targets and they're very close now to reaching 50% of women in parliament. The other major party, on the other hand, did not do that and they have less than 25% of women in parliament. Stark differences. And yeah. it, it shows you if you're not, if you don't keep at something, if you don't have that c- consistency, yeah. you won't get to the end goal. Yeah. And if you don't have, whether it's it's quotas or targets, something that you're aiming for, yeah. uh, that it again won't materialise because it, it's not part of the part of the agenda, part of the KPIs. But that's amazing. So seventy five percent, fifty percent, fifty percent versus less than twenty five percent. Yeah. So parity on one and yeah. not even a quarter on, on the other. And you do need to have a critical mass of women to get that voice. And there's a really good um, uh, um, analogy that the our first female foreign minister, um, or a, a kind of anecdote really, that she always uses. And I, I, and she said that she was in back in 2013. She was the only woman in cabinet. 2013. Yes. This is Australia we're talking about. And, uh, and she always talks about this. And she says that when she was in cabinet, she would suggest ideas uh, only to have them ignored by, you know, all the other men around the table. And then she'd find that someone would copy her ideas and the others would say what a brilliant idea it was. And so she said that once she got a few more women around the cabinet table, they all joined together and made a deal. And um, they said that no matter what each of them said, the others would all come in and say, it's a brilliant idea. <laughs> and, you know, so I think critical mass is really important. Looking at theory of diffusion and innovations, it shows that when you hit 30% of something, then you're able to achieve critical mass. Anything less than that, mm. it, it's like a wasted effort until you get to that break-even point and, and tip over. Mm. Hmm. Well, thinking about numbers here... When I was looking at the latest statistics from the Interparliamentary Union, I recognised in terms of female representation, South Africa is ranked 11th in the world. Mm-hmm. Countries in uh, Other countries in Africa like Rwanda and Namibia hold 1st and 10th positions respectively. Uh, 
Australia ranks 47th, and it indicated that you have 30% female representation. The global average of female representation in parliaments stands at only 24.5%, mm. uh, indicating that most parliaments are male-dominated. Mm. And I think that also ties back to the, the WEF statistic mm. on looking at taking 170 years to get to parity. But within these elements, what do you think we need to do to get to 50-50 at a more rapid rate? Well, it's, I think, a number of the, the um, factors that I've raised. It's about the support enabling mechanisms around um, uh, women themselves to help them um, have that self-belief and self-confidence that they can actually be leaders. I think, you know, we... It's what's also important is that you know we need to um, bring men into the fold, mm. and um, we need to have male sponsors and champions. And a really interesting initiative in Australia, um, which I'm a very strong supporter of, is called the Male Champions of Change Initiative, and it's um, it was I think started maybe in 2010, uh, and uh, it's a coalition of. Australian CEOs, male CEOs, non-executive directors and community leaders who are there to um, support women, stepping women up to try and achieve significant representation and improve representation in leadership, not just in private sector but also in the public sector. And I think it really underscores how important it is to get men on board. And, And... and what we've seen with this initiative is that the men who are part of it are quite competitive amongst themselves. They want to be able to show that in their own organisations they're, they're doing their bits and that's kind of, it's a very healthy competition. Uh, and there have been wonderful examples uh, of what this group has done. So, for instance, the Australian Federal Police Commissioner, he's one of the male champions of change, or the previous one, and no doubt the current one, and uh, he decided to run a female-only recruitment round. Female-only? Yes, because to try and increase the representation of, of women in the police service. And they also, you know, they learn from each other, and, you know, then... Well, the- of course, because just thinking on that example, yeah. if you are looking at it almost as a, as a generational view and... When we see figures like 170 years, that speaks to generational views. That if you are only allowing an input in a particular period, then you've got this this growth. That's a great example. Yeah, and a very practical thing that the male champions of change and initiative they've um, been promoting is called the panel pledge. Uh, I don't know if you're aware of this, but um, yeah, in Australia, um, you know, there's something like only 15% of panelists at major conferences and events are women. Um, And so they have taken the panel pledge, as has the head of our foreign ministry, which means that when she or they are invited to speak or participate in a professional forum, they request advice or confirmation on who the other panellists are, the speakers, and how the gender balance is going to be achieved. Uh, And they insist as a condition of acceptance that they expect women to participate in a meaningful way. And they can reserve the right to withdraw the last minute if um, this isn't going to be the case. And you can also help the organisers by, because often organisers say, but we can't find suitable women. You can help them by offering the names of women from within your organisation or network and, or if necessary, point them to 
available resources. And of course, it can be quite difficult. I mean, particularly, for instance, in some particular economic sectors like mining to to find um, suitable women. But it, you don't always have to have the CEOs who speak. You could have, you know, the chief financial officer or the head of human resources, and often they're better speakers, actually. So, um, and our permanent secretary has taken this panel pledge one step further, that she's now refusing to speak at events where there are very few women in the audience. Um, <laughs> so... And those are, you know, this is the first time I've, I've heard about this, but I love learning about new mechanisms because these are, are effective. These are about putting the pressure on organizers, on organizations to drive that, to drive that change mm-hmm. and go and seek out women. A, it provides a platform for their voice. It provides an opportunity to, for them to get exposure and also expertise recognized in a particular field. Mm. Uh, and bringing more and more women into these spaces and environments. Mm. And a really good example recently was at the South African government's investment conference. I was really struck by the almost total lack of women on stage making the investment pledges. Um, But there was one exception, and there was a CEO of a company who very deliberately stood aside to give the floor to one of his female colleagues, obviously more junior, And it really raised the profile of the company, I think, at this very prestigious event. It spoke to its values and it sent a really powerful message that, you know, gender equality is not only the right thing to do, but it makes commercial sense. We had the Minister of Agriculture, Land Development and Reform, Toko Dodiza, on on the show a couple of weeks ago. And one of the things she said when she was at the investment forum and she was doing something in the poultry sector was exactly, as you said, the lack of female representation from uh, that were mm. coming up and putting in their pledges. Yeah, and it doesn't have to be the CEOs. What he showed was that you could have one of your employees and uh, who makes a strong contribution. And um, so you've got to think of creative ways of getting women to participate meaningfully in these events. Great. Well, thank you for sharing all of those mechanisms, interventions, and things that have a real practical impact on, on helping us shift the the gender balance more towards a parity situation. Hi, my name is Yvonne Chakachaka and I'm UNICEF and Rollback Malaria Goodwill Ambassador. You are listening to Womanity, Women in Unity, a program that celebrates prominent and ordinary African women's milestone achievements in the struggle for liberation, self-emancipation, human rights and democracy, a program against social ills such as racism, socio-economic class division and gender-based violence. Womanity, Women in Unity, presented by Dr. Amalia Balka every week on this day at this time. Today, we're talking to the High Commissioner of Australia to South Africa, Botswana, Lesotho, Mozambique, Namibia, Angola, and Iswatini, Gita Kameth. We would love to receive your comments on Twitter at Womanity Talk. Hi, Commissioner. One question that I'd like to ask you now is about your personal journey. So some guests on the program who've reached tremendous achievements in their respective fields uh, talk about some of the factors that have contributed to their success, Mm. whether that is perseverance, hard work, a a particular person that influenced Mm. them in some way. Could you please share with us, in your opinion, what have been some of your key drivers? Well, I think two things that have had a transformative impact on my life 
have been education and migration to Australia. So I, um, for your listeners, I, am, uh, I, I was born in, in India and um, I then spent the first seven years of my life in Malaysia because my mother was a Malaysian citizen. And so, um, and both my grandmothers who were born in India were married at 13. 13? Yes. So neither of them were educated. I'm getting goosebumps. Yeah. So, and uh, my father was the first person in his whole family to go to university. And of course, women in my, on my mother's side, my, 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 my grandfather was a doctor, but he married a 13-year-old. And, uh, and my grandmother had seven children, six of whom were girls. And uh, she was widowed at a very young age in her 30s. And my mother was, only, she was, my mother was the second oldest and she was 16. And uh, so my grandmother's father, who was a doctor, said, well, what are you going to do? You've got six girls. You're in Malaysia. You're widowed. You know, um, bring them to India and marry them off. She did take, my mother was actually 16. She was on a boat to Dublin to study medicine at 16. Uh, but the other so she was the second oldest. So the other five, she, my grandmother took to India, but she had a falling out with her father. She moved out of the family home and she refused to marry them off. She brought them all up and she was a very strong woman. And they are all, all seven of them are doctors. What a fantastic success story. And yeah. The, the integrity that your grandmother had to, to do this all on her own. Yeah, I mean, she didn't want... them to go through what she'd gone through, which is marriage at such a young age. So I think, you know, I, and and for me, I think that the education is, it's it's just an extraordinary opportunity I've had that my grandmothers didn't have. My mother did have, but I think, you know, she could have, you know, done much more. So I think each generation makes progress and combining that with migration to Australia, that's uh, certainly for me, I think has been transformative. So your mum went to Ireland Yes. And then ended up going to Australia. She fin- she didn't finish medical school in Ireland, so she only- she went there as a 16-year-old. Can you imagine this young Asian woman, girl, very innocent. She finished medical school in Malaysia where she met my fa- in India rather, where she met my father. Um, and then my sister and I were born there, but she found it very hard living in India. We moved back to Malaysia where my brother was born. Um, and Malaysia at that time in the in the early 70s had a lot of racial problems, racial tension, race, race riots actually. And my father wasn't a citizen, so it was very difficult for him as an Indian to remain there. And you see that this is a time when a lot of Chinese and Indian Malaysians left Malaysia. It was it coincided with the end of the white Australia policies. So a lot of, and Australia was taking doctors. So a lot of Chinese and Indian Malaysians migrated as doctors to Australia at that time. And when we're speaking about the education aspect, you've got a, a Bachelor of Arts and Bachelor of Law from New South Wales University. You've also got a Master of Arts in Foreign Affairs and Trade, which you attained from the Australian National University. And you've been admitted to the Supreme Court of New South Wales as a legal practitioner. So you've You've emphasised in the conversation the, the impact of, of education and to a certain extent on some of the aspects of being transformational for your family. Mm. Is there anything else you'd, you'd like to share on that point? Well, look, I think I look at my mother and she was also like her mother, uh, an extraordinary force of nature. And um, 
she was offered a Fulbright scholarship in, in Malaysia, but she gave it up to get married. Uh, and she was a medical doctor. And when we came to Australia, you know, she had to requalify and become a medical specialist. And she had lots of exams. And I remember her being not being absent to study. Uh, and she qualified as a, an immunologist. And this is in the 1970s. And most of my friends, their mothers didn't work. And I had a mother who was a very, you know, a scientist. And she was in a very male-dominated profession. And I think I look back on it now and I, I didn't realise at the time how difficult it must have been for her and how many challenges and frustrations she had in the 1970s as a, uh, a non-Anglo-Saxon woman in, a sci- in, in the scientific field. Um, and I think that, you know, if she'd been born now, wow, what she could have achieved. So I'm really, you know, I think that... The, the slogan, because of her, I am. I think that applies to my mother in terms of her, her mother, and it certainly applies to me in terms of my mother. And being a massive influence in a subtle way as, as role modelling for, for you to become the person you are today. You've shared a, a, a few of the highlights on, on your travels, on being in India, on being in Malaysia and being in Australia. Can you tell us about some of the pivotal moments in your life growing up which have, have made you to be who you are today? Well, I think I, 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 what I've said, I mean, moving countries, um, you know, it's, it's, I think there are a few countries where a migrant like me could represent that country internationally. And um, so I think, you know, that's really a pivotal moment, migration to Australia. And given your experiences so far in in your career if you could call out one lesson what would it be oh wow um look i think i'm always learning so i think i'm continuously learning um i think you know i I mentioned right at the beginning of this interview uh, my aborted first posting so i think you know i the best laid plans of mice and men (laughs) you really have to expect the unexpected and go with the flow um i think it's important to you know, challenge ourselves to be brave and and put ourselves out there, and be open. And you know, failure can be a very powerful learning tool, especially if you combine it with a positive attitude. But sometimes that's almost so so challenging to think <laughs> of failure as in in a positive perspective. <laughs> yes. But you're right. Ultimately, I think our, our biggest lessons actually come from failures. They're the ones that we we remember the longest. Maybe it's because of the pain mm. that you endure as you go through it. And finally, as we conclude our, our conversation today, could you share a, a few words of, mm. of wisdom or inspiration that you'd like to pass on to women across the continent that are, are listening to us? Well, when I had this function recently that I mentioned for the female ambassadors and um, South African women in leadership, I, conclu- I gave a bit of a speech and I concluded with one of my favourite sayings, which is actually from Madeleine Albright, who's the US, former US Secretary of State, so in the foreign relations field. And I think she said something like, there is a special place reserved in hell for women who don't support other women. Um, so I, you know, that was part of the reason I held the function because I was like, well, we all need to support each other and uh, we are much stronger together. But I think, you know, one of the the quotes that I really hold very closely to me is from the late, great Toni Morrison, which is that if you are free, free someone else. Uh, and if you have power, empower someone else. Such poignant words. 
really and uh, you know apart from looking at it from from an individual point of view to internalize that but being able to make sure that you help other people around you who are less fortunate but who still could have so much opportunity available mm. to them thank you so much we really appreciate you being on the show and look forward to, to hearing more and i hope you enjoy your your tour in this incredibly diverse portfolio that you have in in the continent thank you very much it's been a great pleasure you have been listening to womanity woman in unity on channel africa the african perspective and we have been talking to australia's high commissioner to south africa botswana lusutu mozambique namibia angola and iswatini gita kameth